Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to First Edition. On today's show, I talk with Courtney Thorson associate professor in the Department of English at the University of Oregon, and the author of the new book, The Sisterhood, How a Network of Black Women Writers Changed American Culture. It's out, came out November 7th from Columbia University Press. Really interesting conversation about a really interesting part of time. People you've heard of, including Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, some maybe you haven't, authors, journalists, playwrights, getting together over a two-year period and then with longer-lasting ramifications to talk about art and writing and politics and blackness and what it was like to be a woman and all of those things intersecting. And Professor Thorson's investigated this, talked with a lot of the women there, went through their archives, a fascinating window into a particular moment in time that's really echoed down to us today. So stick around and let's get into it. The book starts with an image. It's on the cover. It is of some black women. And I think, Courtney, I'll let you tell me how you telescoped out from this image, how you encountered it, what it is, and and what it represents. So nearly 20 years ago, I saw this photo labeled the Sisterhood 1977 in the first place where it appeared publicly, which was Evelyn White's book, Alice Walker, A Life. So it's a biography of Alice Walker. And my um, teacher, mentor, beloved friend, Farrah Griffin said, oh, there's a photo you got to see in this book. You know, take a look at this, Courtney. And I, like anyone, the first time I looked at the photograph, I knew something important was going on. So probably in 2004, I recognized Toni Morrison and that long leather duster with her big chunky gold necklace on. I definitely would have recognized Alice Walker. In 2004, I had no idea who Verda Mae Grosvenor was, that she's the tallest woman in the photo and the tallest woman in most rooms during her lifetime. (laughs) Major culinary anthropologist, um, increasingly understood as an important figure as the field of food studies has grown People have gotten more interest in food, cookbook author, NPR, PBS host, so on. So I knew something was important there. And I also knew I didn't know all the facts. And it and I flagged the page and kind of just started like a hard copy folder of the mm. Sisterhood 1977. What might this be? Um Mentioned to a few folks along the way that this is something I'm interested in, or I would say, have you heard of this group? Does this picture look familiar? Do you know the other people in this photo? So on. And it was the amazing Black feminist scholar, institution builder, long time at Rutgers, Cheryl Wall, was researching in the poet and activist June Jordan's papers at Harvard and came across meeting minutes for this Mm. group, the Sisterhood. And she slipped me a photocopy of those. And so that was kind of the clue 
oh, something way more ordered and formal was going on here. If there's agendas and meeting minutes, that's not just one night, you know, where they, where they snapped a photo in June Jordan's apartment. So from there, that led me on a long, um, multi-location archival journal journey to uncover the story of this particular group and their lasting effects mm. on culture. So this is what f- spring 1977 is the first meeting. Is that right? It's February, February 1977. 1977. So these black women from many walks of literary life from the, it sounds like some fairly junior people that were pretty agog to be there saying, Hey, there's Alice, there's, there's Morrison, there's, there's Zake to, and again, Morrison and Walker had not yet reached the peaks, but they were what? Three years away. Walker's two years away from color purple song of Solomon is what three or four. It's a little bit. And then of course the thing that comes after no song of Solomon's out already. Song, song of Solomon is 77. So 77. Song of right. Solomon comes out. Yep. Yeah. But already within, if not, and then if not within the wider mainstream American culture, which they would, you know, come onto the scene within this group, these are icons already. These are legends Correct. already. What are they trying to do, Courtney? What are these women's of various walks of life? Some of them don't have three chairs in their apartment, so they can't host people all the right. way to walkers, you know, capacious already kind of place. They're, they're, journalists, they're critics, they're academics, they're poets, they're playwrights. What are they trying to do? Or what what is your understanding, at least at the initial, of what they wanted and what they wanted this group to be? What they are trying to do is bring together in one room, once a month, the massive cultural capital that this group of women had, the skills that many of them had gained as activists in the mm-hmm. civil rights and black power movements to, and I use the phrase, move the needle in black women's lives, which is a quote from an interview that I conducted for this book with the, it was the womanist theologian, Renita Weems, mm-hmm. who said to me, what we were set out to do was move the needle in black women's lives. Now, what that meant is to seek publication and publicity for black women writers across forms and maybe especially for poets because they had it harder mm-hmm. it's harder to some things to don't follow. change courtney but yes right. yes especially especially that and so move the needle i think for pe- listeners of this show and that's something i've been interested in as sort of an insider outsider is the machinations of publishing how things get made how things get done and on the one hand, you you write about how they've come out of civil rights movements, black power movements, into the which you know the first iteration into black letters is the black arts movement, which has a, a different flavor and context there. But they're trying to figure out what they can do, what can be done, and what works to move the needle. And it's something all the way from. You know, there's been dis- every now and again, there's discourse about blurbs, right? How it's like, uh, mm-hmm. they're annoying and yeah. no one should do them. And you have this great moment of Morrison blurb hunting, right? Because right. she needs blurbs for a book. I think it's a book of poetry. I think that anecdote, I can't quite remember. And that's the work they're trying to figure out. There's been some inroads made into the institutions of the academy and the publishing industry. 
And it sounds to me like they're trying to figure out what to do with it. What's a responsible use of it? What's a powerful use of it? What's an impactful use of it? Do I have that basically right of, of what they're trying to figure out? You do. And let's just zoom out a little bit for the historical context yeah. of when you say what they can do or move the needle. Mm-hmm. So by the late 70s, it's more than a decade since the last major civil rights legislation, right? 65, 1965 Civil Rights Act. Many of the hopes that um, Black people in this country had held for liberation through state or public channels uh, had failed, (laughs) were huge disappointments. And the um, fiscal crisis in 73 causes the beginning of a dramatic shrinking of the social security net and the uh, uh, social safety net and a defunding of all kinds of public services, including higher education that persists through the present. So, and New York is like the paradigmatic, you know, exemplar of the failed over Democratic government spending, right, in the 70s. So by the late 70s, when this group of women starts to get together and calls themselves the Sisterhood, it's their name from the first meeting, they name themselves the Sisterhood, they have already figured out that legislative channels Mm. and public governmental institutions are not places where they can, quote, move the needle in Black women's lives. So they set their sights on culture, by which I mean trade publishing, small press publishing, mass magazines, niche magazines, and eventually the academy, higher education. Mm. That's a totally logical decision in light of the historical context. So when you say what they can do, what they could do was change culture and they knew it. Right. So that's one piece. Yeah. And some things change, some things stay the same. The idea that Toni Morrison is writing 40 letters in 1977, at least, so Morrison has already been at Random House for at least a decade, mm-hmm. brought it, she's brought in and edited Muhammad Ali's autobiography, Angela Davis's autobiography, you know, Gail Jones's first novel, Corregidora, by this point. So by 77, at the same time these women are meeting, Morrison is a one-woman letter-writing campaign. It's not a publicity department at Random House. There's not an assistant editor. There's not an assistant sending out those letters. And she, in some sense, it's a form letter, Mm. but then the letters to like Gwendolyn Brooks or James Baldwin or other folks who she really wanted to push to blurb Jordan's things that I do in the dark. Morrison is, you know, adding a loving handwritten (laughs) note or typing up a little something about Baldwin's latest in the Mm. note to him and so on. And Morrison does the exact same thing with Tony Cade Bambara's collection, the seabirds are still alive and actually in her, the random house archive at Columbia um, university library, which is one source of these materials. Mm. There's just stacks and stacks of the address labels that Morrison printed to send out, you know, tons of materials about Bambara's the seabirds are still alive. This incredible, like heavy, invisible, iterative, passionate, labor you know and so i say in the book that i define a couple of times the idea of sisterhood work Mm. so sisterhood work is advocacy for black women's writing rooted in love 
sending out stacks of letters to get those blurs is sisterhood work. Bringing the groceries, taking the kids, you know, that kind of stuff. Because I want to get there in, in just a minute. I don't want to shortchange some of the other things that went into this moment. But one thing you're imagining is how to use this group as a model. And and not just what they did, but what they were thinking about and what they were represented. Like, what is this? What does solidarity look like? What does support look like? What does mm-hmm. power, frankly, look like? And what's a responsible wielding of that power? And also the challenges that come thereof. Because the formal meetings, such as they are, it's a two-year window, essentially, mm-hmm. right? You know, just over two just years. Just over two years. And it's there's a couple of months get skipped. It's hugely meaningful for the women that are in it. And it has a longer, it's a little hard to tell, like the meetings themselves or the the connections made. It's kind of a yes and, right? Do you have one mm-hmm. without the other and how does it go? But then they're figuring out what they can do, what they want to do and how it use it. And then they they go in a bunch of different directions. Okay, so I, mm-hmm. I do want to back up just one second because the other thing you're you're very clear on is this is a black woman space, and they mm-hmm. had sort of a you can bring someone else as long as they're a black woman sort of working yeah. in our in our racket to some degree as right. long you know it's for that. And as these women and the women they represent around the country in San Francisco and Chicago and other places have a higher profile. It's not a smooth transition from the 60s to the 70s. And Black men who are prominent writers at the time are not taking this particularly well. They're not met with open arms, you know, as you might imagine, the wider publishing industry, the wider literary community. Can you talk about how, I guess, exposed they were to criticism and scorn and why it was so important for them to basically huddle up? Even for because even this two year window is important in the timeline. What happens with the eighties and after? Correct. So that just over two year window that the sisterhood met is bookended on either side by some of the most virulent backlash to Black women writers in American literary history. So first to Antezaki Shange's For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow is Enough, which in the year, in 76, so before the sisterhood starts to meet, um, For Colored Girls moves to Broadway, it wins an Obie Award. And as I understand it from the women in this group, the poster for the show with Entezaki Shange's face on it mm. was plastered all over the city. So she was the face of Black women's writing that, in the view of some Black men, treated Black men poorly. The profound irony of any of these conversations, whether it's about The Color Purple, Alice Walker's mm. novel, Steven Spielberg's adaptation of that novel, For Colored Girls, you know, or any other works by these women, the, the profound irony is that these are books are by and about women. So to kind of stage forceful protests about how they mm-hmm. portray men is, in my view, a little ridiculous. But the lived experience or the need, as you say, to huddle up was real. And Tazaki Shange, as we know from her journals, was shocked at the force of the backlash and was shocked and hurt by the fact that much of it came from Black men. So that's late 76 into early 77. When the Sisterhood stops meeting, late 78, early 79, that's the moment of publication 
of mm. Michelle Wallace's Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman, which is a nonfiction book that's really about dynamics between Black men and women, particularly in heterosexual relationships. I think it stands as um, an incredibly important Black feminist text. That said, Michelle Wallace, it was her first book. She's gone on to do lots of other important stuff. She was 27 years old mm. when it came out. She was appeared on the cover of Miss. It appears in the book. Right. And it's one of a cluster of photos, several of which have never appeared in print anywhere else. First Black woman to ever be you know, full portrait on the cover of Miss Magazine. Black Macho was excerpted in Miss, and she was really attacked in almost every form of media by folks from all walks of life. And there were even some Black women who felt that Wallace was, um, quote unquote, airing dirty laundry yeah. by talking about intra-racial dynamics to an audience that included a white readership. A dynamic that goes back to the Harlem Renaissance, like don't tell the secrets, man. Don't represent Black life in a way that you understand it because, you know, also the understanding that art is political and those representations have consequences. You know, that that's a that's a longer story. And then on the other side, you mentioned Miss Magazine, white feminists are also having their own <laughs> resistance, let's call mm -hmm. it, shortcomings, lacuna in their understanding, because even as Alice Walker is contributing to Miss, she's not feeling great there. Like it's it's kind of right. that push me pull you of there's a, a a a foothold is earned, and then once you're there, it's not all sunshine and rainbow. So like that's uh, Margot Jefferson at Newsweek, and then mm -hmm. they use those connections. So you can kind of start placing some interviews, right? You can get a book reviewed, and you start building on these kinds of using what space is clawed for, won, fought willingly and sometimes unwillingly given. And then at this moment, it feels like sort of a platform building, like an intellectual platform building for what the future is going to look like. Having said that, these women, even these, you know, how many were at the biggest meeting? 20? I, I didn't get a sense of like, what's your sense of what that we capped out at the biggest meeting? There were, well, there were a, um, around 30 women 30. who okay. attended one or more meetings. One or more. Very few where all 30 were there yeah. at once. That kind of 15 to 20 range, I guess, yeah. is the sense. So these 30-ish women that show up at some point to to eat in Park Slope or the Upper West Side, you know, on a third Sunday of the month, I think is something mm -hmm. like that. They are not a monolith either. Correct. They have their own. They're trying to figure some shit out, honestly, about what it is. So can you talk to me about what shit they're trying to figure out? Yeah. So they're... On the, on the one hand, you have these women like Morrison and Walker who are well into their yeah. careers, and you have other, even almost a generation older than them, Paul Marshall, who's been publishing since the 50s, has been yeah. a member of the Harlem Writers Guild and other kinds of collectives. Now, on the, the so they're all trying to figure things out, <laughs> but what many of the younger women are trying to figure out is, how do I make enough money to live in New York City? Right. What it is that I want to do now that I just graduated from college? Mm -hmm. Am I a writer? <laughs> so that would include, for example, Judith Wilson, who was a recent college graduate at the time that the sisterhood began meeting. And she had taken 
lessons in note hand, which is a form of shorthand. As a college mm. student, she took note yeah. hand, was trained in note hand because the assumption was, um, and she was at a small liberal arts college in the Northeast. So the assumption was that if you were a black woman sitting at a small liberal arts college in the Northeast in the 1970s, you would perform some kind of secretarial labor if you right. continued to work. Right. So partly it was that Judith Wilson was younger and new and kind of just grateful to be in the room with these accomplished writers. But partly it was her skill and note hand that led her to become the initial secretary for the group. And secretary is Judith's word. Mm -hmm. That's the word Judith Wilson used, right? During the time the sisterhood was meeting, Judith started her doctoral studies in art history and went on to become one of the most important art historians of contemporary Black women visual artists. Uh, you know, she wrote about Lorraine O'Grady 40 years before Lorraine O'Grady got her first big retrospective mm. at the Rucka Museum, but in 1983, right? <laughs> Judith Wilson actually found her path during those sisterhood meetings. And it was in part seeing when you talk about power and the responsible yielding of power, it was in part observing what the responsible yielding of power looked like in these yeah. established women's lives that kind of empowered Judith Wilson to go on. And now, now she's Judith Wilson Pates to go on to pursue mm. this really full, incredible career. And she's taught at Yale university of Virginia, and then was at UC Berkeley until she retired in 2006. Yeah. Some of it is modeling that this is possible, that, there's a way of doing that's human, that's feminist, that supports Black people and Black people's lives. And then I guess the substance of what they talked about is somewhat known and and not, you know, depending on how if there were minutes for that meeting and what they were talking about. One, one part that struck me is in one of the minutes, it sounds like the main topic was depression, right? So it wasn't, it was, you know, how to get tenure, how to get a gig, how to get a freelance gig. But some of it was just how to be, and it felt like there was a tension, and tell me if I'm reading this right or wrong, between let's start Kizzy Enterprises to be a, a publishing firm, and let's support each other as as women and talk about our, you know, our, our lived lives. And that's all, you know, part of it is it's all mixed up, but it did feel like there was a tension or a dissonance or some people wanted more of one thing or one or the other. Can you talk about how the range of what they were really talking about and trying to deal with in these meetings? Yes. So there is a tension between accomplishing visible practical goals and providing, sustaining one another through other kinds of emotional support. Um, now, I would put it to you that that tension is true in any committed yes. political group of people yeah. that wants to treat its members as human beings. And I would put it to you that it's especially true for feminist groups. Mm -hmm. If you're working to operate in a non-hierarchical way, if you have, as is in the case of this particular group, varying views about how much you are committed to participating in or resisting a capitalist marketplace. So they're coming out of a Black feminism that's really anti-capitalist. Mm -hmm. And they are, many of these women not totally rejecting a capitalist marketplace because they're interested in survival. So they're finding out how, you know, and right. they, they have a variety of economic backgrounds, right? So the seriousness of that varies for different members of the group. Okay. So that's, that's part of it. 
Now, they absolutely understood that those varying kinds of interpersonal connections and support are interdependent with the visible work of reviewing books, editing books, getting blurbs, getting a magazine out, you know, getting headshots of folks, whatever. Mm-hmm. They understood those two forms of work as interdependent. The primary purpose of the sisterhood was mostly to do and support their work as writers and intellectuals. Now, sometimes that required those interpersonal and emotional supports. So yes, you are seeing a tension between Marsha Ann Gillespie, incredible force at Essence Magazine. This is even more true if you watch the documentary Time of Essence. Marsha Ann Gillespie is, in my view, the best thing about it. Recent. So Marsha Ann Gillespie at Essence, she had written an editorial in Essence about depression. And Alice Walker invited her to come talk to the sisterhood about that. Now, you're right. That is in the minutes. But it gets a sentence. Marsha Ann Gillespie then talked to the group about depression, period, and the minutes end. As opposed to listing who's on the board of Heresies magazine, yeah. Veve Clark has connected with this group in the Bay Area, and Tazaki Shange is trying to get video recordings of this dance troupe for our library, right? Those things are listed in a, in a kind of detail that we don't get for discussions of depression, meditation, which they also mm-hmm. talked about. Alice Walker was studying uh, meditation at this time, partly with the help of uh, Nana Maynard, who is the person in the far left lower corner of this photograph, is one of the one folks recognize less. Um, and she now goes by Dr. Sananda Ananda, and she is um, an Ananda spiritual practitioner and mm. expert in transcendental meditation. So that kind of more ephemeral stuff doesn't always make it into the meeting minutes. Just like the fact that sometimes people brought their kids to meetings never appears in the minutes. I would never know that unless some of the women had told me, Mm. Um, which is to say they knew the group was important while it happened. They knew someone like me was going to come along later and look at these minutes. Interesting. Like they thought about what was going to be the public meaning of the sisterhood. And it was about them as writers and intellectuals, not necessarily about them as mothers or meditators or babysitters for one another's kids. Right. There's at one point where they're talking about even the the real, both as symbol and object, like someone's Rolodex is an asset, right? For them to figure right. out how to share, how to use responsibly, and then build upon, right? It's, it sounds like it was sort of taken as read that you were supposed to do what you could to help someone, right? Or to 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 at least take a meeting or take an idea or put someone in a position to have a conversation. What happens here at the end where the the formal meetings stop? Is there yeah, what's your understanding about what 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 learnings do you take from kind of how this ran its course? The formal meetings of the group ended I think sometime in early 1979. And yes, it was in in some ways due to the women becoming increasingly successful mm-hmm. and busy. And yeah, for any of us, it's hard to get together once a month with a consistent group of people. 
it's almost hard for me to think about the sisterhood as having ended because their effects persist even in yeah. our current moment. Right. It's not, it's not as though there were there. Yes. There were disagreements about what the group was going to do, but it's not as though they ended over conflict. Right. It's not as though they ended with bad blood or disagreement. So we think right now about, you know, Patricia Spears Jones, poet in the group, also one of the younger mother- members from Arkansas, from a poorer working class family. So much about being with the sisterhood was new and exciting to her. And she's had more success in the past five to 10 years than her career altogether. You know, she won the um, Jackson Poetry Prize in 2017 and her new volume, fabulous new volume, The Beloved Community just came out, I think, in mm. September from Copper Canyon Press. You can see the influence of the sisterhood all over those poems, and she would say the same to you. And then even, for example, I don't use Facebook, but the theologian, uh, Renita Weems, pastor, Reverend Dr. Mm-hmm. Renita Reams, who's based in Nashville, just told me a few days ago that Patricia Spears Jones is posting about the sisterhood of my book all over Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> there's that, there's that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the scholar Dana Williams has a forthcoming book about called uh, Tony at Random, which is about Tony Morrison's work at Random House. And the idea that we all kind of know that Tony Morrison changed what got published because she had these decades at Random House. OK, but we don't even like have the first full book that's a study. Yeah, of that yeah, yet, I'm ready. Right? I'm so ready. I couldn't be more ready for that book. Yeah. So uh, and. Even Alice Walker's uh, journals and Gathering Blossoms Under Fire, which is the most recent publication of her journals, there's information in my book that was news to me from that text. Mm. Michelle Wallace sent an email offering factual corrections to the very galley you have in your hands. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So in other words, the women of their sisterhood and their broader landscape of contemporaries they can speak for themselves. I'm not giving voice to the voiceless. I, you know, they are powerful writers and intellectuals who did and many continue to write and speak brilliantly about a wide variety of subjects, including arts, literature, music, mm-hmm. and so on, and to write and produce beautiful literature and art themselves. My job is to tell the story of the sisterhood's labor and the transformation of American culture broadly. And so that's really just like knitting work or synthesizing work Mm -hmm. that this book does. And so one of the reasons it's incredibly hard for me to talk about the ending of the sisterhood is because I'm an African-American literature professor who uses black feminist methods, which means that every day the job I do only exists because of Mm. the work that the sisterhood and their generation did. Mm -hmm. And it feels especially for many reasons about the political climate right now, it actually feels like that work really still needs to be defended, Mm. right? The fact that I'm right now teaching a class in one class in Black feminist literature and one um, class on the poetry of Black liberation. And it feels like it's kind of dangerous right now, you know, in some way, not the way it would, it is for my black colleagues. I'm a white Mm -hmm. person. So it's not dangerous for me in the way it is for black colleagues to teach courses like that. My students and I have 
you know, have to talk about like questions of surveillance and how you create a space where you can actually like learn and talk Mm -hmm. and make mistakes that's for us, by us, not about making a political football for somebody else, right? So that is not the same as, you know, Hortense Spillers fighting to teach the first class of Black women's literature at Brandeis in 1973 that Judith Wilson actually took, right? It's not the Mm -hmm. same as that. It's not the same as Mary Helen Washington establishing the Black Studies Department at the University of Detroit and beginning what would become a career for Mary Helen Washington of um, not just making possible the study of a vast body of African-American literature, but making the fact of a black woman's literature possible. You know, she's the one who coins the term black women writers renaissance. So what mm-hmm. I do is not the same as what those women did. It's possible because of what those women did and it still needs to be defended. And that's like a three steps down subset between even just why do we need to fund higher education? Right. What do you do with an English degree? Right. <laughs> why does the humanities matter? Right. So I'm, you know, a further step down, but absolutely 100% this is not just about like literature scholars or scholarly writing. Every person can have a better life and make a more just world by reading and studying African-American literature in general. June Jordan definitely thought that and wrote about it while the sisterhood was meeting and it's still true now. What do you think these women would think of? Some of them are still alive and working. Some of them are. Yeah. What has changed since 1979? What hasn't changed what they'd be surprised by, what they'd be thrilled by, what they'd be terrified by. I don't want to speak for anybody. And you're right. Many of these women are still living and working or were recently living Mm -hmm. and working. So the last I attended a virtual events that Alice Walker did with the publication of Gathering Blossoms. And what I would say is that she still, in a way that echoes 77, 78, 79, talks about study as central to the work of liberation. Mm. Um, Study as central to the work of liberation. I think that Morrison really used her prominence to become both a literary critic and an advocate for African-American literature and Black studies broadly defined. So we have a lot of writing, some of the best of it, collected in the volume, The Source of Mm Self-Regard. Kind of what she thought about the way things were headed. One of the most important takeaways, I would say, from Morrison's essays and later writings in terms of um, what she would look around and see now and what do we do is black studies is both its own thing and it needs to be everywhere else. So the lesson of the way her 1987 novel beloved has been canonized and is taught both in an English department and a law school is kind of a paradigmatic case, which opens up both possibilities and it sets limits. But to say that, You need just as deep context to understand Audre Lorde's two poems about (laughs) 1973 police murder Mm. of Clifford Glover in Harlem as you do to understand Shakespeare's Dark Lady sonnets, right? 
So thus, you must have classes in African-American literature or Black women writers or Black women's poetry about racist police violence. Is a, mm-hmm. you know, of course. So you need that kind of deep specialization and you need to disperse that work through all other units. You see this with something like it would have been unimaginable to me 15 years ago that James Baldwin would occupy the place of prominence he does in popular and academic discourse. So I regularly now am reading dissertation chapters by political science students who have a Baldwin chapter, right? Um, same thing with W.E.B. Du Bois, right? Yeah. He really is taken up now as a philosopher and a political scientist, as well as a sociologist, whereas mm-hmm. for a long time, it really was the province of African-American literature professors right. to advocate right. for Du Bois and the souls right. of Black folk, right? Yeah. So both and would be a key lesson from Morrison. So I think Morrison would be um, and many of her cohort would be delighted to see the way Baldwin has suffused popular and academic culture across disciplines and fields. Um, I, I bet I wouldn't speak for Tony K. Bambar or Ntozaki Shange, but I bet that they would both be shocked to see how things they imagined would come to fruition in their lifetime are almost impossible for people in their teens and 20s to imagine now. Those things include tuition-free college for everyone, free childcare for all children under five, substantive parental leave of all, you know, for yeah. all Americans. These kind of like basic human rights that seem to be kind of coming down the pike in the late 60s or early 70s, especially with what was going on around the open admissions movement, Right. which Danica Savonic has an upcoming book called Open Admissions about this movement. But the open admissions movement and the things going on with tuition in the CUNY system in New York and the University of California system, it seemed inevitable that public college education would be available for free to anyone who wanted it. A number of forces, not the least of them, Ronald Reagan, both as a governor and as president, turned into not just an impossibility, you know, not just reversing the progress that had been made, but created the reality that my students live in now, where the idea that we thought those things are possible is just really hard for them to imagine. So to bring back that radical imagination, you know, what Robin Kelly writes about as freedom dreams. I think that the women of the sisterhood and their works, and maybe if I'm really lucky, my book, help Mm -hmm. young people have like those freedom dreams about a wider scope and spectrum of possibility. Thanks so much to Professor Thorson for talking with me today. The name of the book is The Sisterhood. It's available now. Go check it out. If you like first edition, think about rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. Think about following us on Instagram. Think about signing up to the newsletter. All of those things are there in the show notes. Hope you're having a wonderful holiday season as we get into it. And until next time, read something great.